would like to say good morning again to everyone, and uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. I'd like you to uh, open up to the 10th chapter, and actually today we're going to be concluding, we're going to be concluding um, our series on John for a period, and we'll return to it later. I'm going to be reading to you from John chapter 10, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And I pray that the Lord will give us insight by His Holy Spirit. At that time, the text says, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. The Feast of Dedication is what we know as the Feast of Hanukkah. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because... You are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and then sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Let's pray together. Our Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning, as we think about this text of Scripture, I'd like us to consider what Jesus' answer was to a question that you may have raised yourself or that may have been raised to you. And that question is simply, why, why 
is the deity of Jesus so integral and such a part of the gospel message that we've been entrusted with? Why was me, on top of everything else, all the skepticism of our age, why must we have this added burden of insisting on Jesus' deity? I mean, can't we just agree that Jesus was in some sense divine, that he, and, and didn't just leave the focus to, to, to proclaim that Jesus died for your sins, that he was sent from God for this purpose, so believe in him as your Savior. Why can't we do that? Why can't we leave it at that? Must we all be theologians? The gospel would be so much simpler, the barriers to faith so much lower, if we were not insisting that people believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. The Son of God who is God and with God from before creation. Now I'd ask you to forgive me, I guess, for speaking this way, but I am trying to make a point. And that's really to crucify our flesh as Christians. Let's think about this question. Why? And I want to begin with a couple of observations for you this morning. The first observation I want to make is this, that the deity, just remember this, that the deity of Jesus was very important to the early church. Her leaders, including in so many cases, her best and her brightest, like the great Athanasius, spent the better part of 400 years working out the implications of Jesus' deity. And we know one of those implications in the doctrine of the Trinity. That God is one. There is one God subsisting in three persons. We know another implication was worked out is the doctrine of Christ or Christology. That he is one person with two natures. Fully deity. Fully humanity. And if you ask, why would the church just work this out? Why would this be such a, a passion and a commitment? The answer was because they felt bound to expound and to defend the truth of Jesus' words. When he said things like, I and the Father, there's the distinction between them, are one. There's the union they share. And he said this, though he was a man in two natures, fully God and fully human. And it could be asked, would such deep convictions have developed, would such clarity have resulted apart from the Gospel of John? Because really the Gospel of John is the mother load in the Bible teaching the deity of Jesus. If he'd only been left with, say, Matthew, Mark, and, and, and Luke, uh, what, what would have happened? Well, of course, obviously, I don't know. But what I do know is that what Jesus said in relation to Psalm 86 in our passage is true of John and every other portion of the Holy Scripture. And that is to say... That Scripture, Jesus makes this very explicit in our passage, that Scripture, the graphe, the written word 
of God. The, the word put down in writing cannot be broken. And that is broken in the sense of broken up or broken apart or broken down. This word broken means to unbind what belongs bound together. That's exactly what it means. So this word is used of bricks in a wall being broken. It's used of the elements of the creation which are together that one day will be broken or dissolved in the judgment. It's used of the straps of the sandal tied together, which John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to tie those straps on his sandal. That's the first part I just want us to think. This is very important to the church, the early church. I'm going to make a second observation. This truth that we're talking about, the deity of Jesus, the complete deity of Jesus Christ, is a costly truth, and it has always been a costly truth. John records that every time Jesus said something that implied his deity, the Jews attempted to kill him every single time on the ground that he was committing blasphemy, which means that he was distorting or profaning the name of God, distorting or profaning who God is. In John chapter 5, verse 20, after Jesus was condemned for his Sabbath healing of a blind, lame, paralyzed man, he replied, my father is working until now, and I am working. And John comments, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In John eight fifty nine, the Jews accused Jesus of being a demonized Samaritan, and, and Jesus responds, a fairly lengthy response. He concludes his defense by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He describes himself in the eternally present I am terms reserved for God alone. And again, John comments, so they picked up stones to throw at him. And now here in John 10, verse 28, Jesus says of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now folks, just as no one has authority to forgive sins except for God alone, no one can grant eternal life except for God alone. No one can give the assurance of, of, of keeping another safe in, in, the, in life with God forever except for, for God. And yet Jesus here says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And I, no one will snatch them out of my 
hand. Jesus is claiming the prerogatives of God alone, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now here Jesus is not only insisting um, or proclaiming this truth of his deity with the Father, but he's elaborating it even in the presence of his enemies. Now listen carefully about this passage and what Jesus was saying here. For the longest time, I missed what he was saying. I, I thought he was saying, not only do I keep you or my sheep in my hand, but the Father also keeps you in his hand. The Father keeps you in his hand in addition to my keeping you in my hand. And so I pictured and I preached at one point, I preached at one point this image of the Father's hand enclosing the Son's hand enclosing us. It was so beautiful. So the idea is that you're doubly protected. The guarantee that you're safe in Jesus' hand is that he has a backup. <laughs> you have a backup in the Father's hand. But Jesus was not making a point about two hands. His and God's hand. The Father's hand. He was not saying, no problems, no worry, I have reinforcements. That's not what he was saying. No, his point was saying that no one will snatch them out of my hand was no different from saying no one is able to snatch them out of thy father's hand. That to say no one will snatch them out of my hand is to say no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And the confirmation of that shocking identification of Jesus' hand with the father's hand is the very next verse, the famous verse. We quote out of context, I and the father are one. So we read for the third time in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The charge being blasphemy. Because you being a man, they said, make yourself God. And Jesus responds by appealing to them for the sake of their salvation. One more time, he appeals to them. First, from Psalm 82, 6, that they should not be quick to condemn him for being called the Son of God when that term for God, the Old Testament term for God, Elohim, is applied there to men to whom the law was given. And secondly, he appeals to them that the testimony of his works, which is to say his miraculous healing, life-giving mercies are the works of God. So if you don't accept my words, look at the works. My works are God's works. And then in verse 38, he concludes with a statement now 
that paralyzes, parallels what he said back in verse 30. He returns exactly to the point. In the midst of all this hostility, in the midst of all this desire to stone him, he does not budge. He does not retreat. He does not give ground. He says, he says, even if you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And the result in verse 39 is, again, they seek to arrest him. But he escapes from their hands. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. You know, excuse me, in the Old Testament, people were singled out. They were named as being filled with God's Spirit, that God was in them. But here Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Jesus is saying that God's prerogative of being in Him is matched by His prerogative of being in the Father. And later in John 14, when Jesus is alone with his disciples, he returns to the same language and he becomes even more explicit. In response to Philip's plea, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough, Jesus says, have I been so long with you, Philip, and you don't get it? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. No mere, mere human being could ever have said that. None. He was saying so much more. Jesus shared in the deity, he shares in the deity of the Father. So for Jesus to hold you in his hand, you trust him as your savior? For forgiveness? For eternal life? It's for the Father, who's above all, greater than all, to hold you in his hand. For you to see Christ is to see the Father. The miraculous mercies he performed are the works of the Father. Otherwise, he could not have done them. And, segue, important, and, this is just as true of his far greater work. The work he did in atoning for our sins on the cross. All the claims and all the promises inherent in the gospel hinge on Jesus' deity just as much as on his humanity. No mere human being, even if he were willing, could take upon himself the role of savior and mediator between God and man. The death that was necessary was the death of the Son of God. An heroic death by an extraordinary man was not what was required 
but rather an atonement for sin that both satisfied God's justice and extended his mercy. And that could only come from God. To think that God could divert his justice from me, a sinner, onto some other. To think that he could hoist the debt of justice that I owe onto another fellow serf and then tell me, okay, you're forgiven. That is no justice at all. That's a crime. And there's no hope in that for mercy from that God. Forgiveness rests on God assuming to himself willingly, voluntarily, and completely the debt we owe to him. Mercifully, lovingly, sacrificially, painfully. And our sin is our rebellion against God. Last week's inspiring message on the lost son, as David put it, the prodigal son, David underscored how we are like that prodigal son in the parable. We sin against God like that son sinned against his father by wanting all that God has for us. In fact, presuming that we are entitled, even while we actively reject him and distance ourselves from him and stay as far away from him or apart from him and his truth as possible. I have to say, that really spoke to me. It had never dug into my craw like it did last week. Folks, only God can forgive our rebellion by assuming our debt. Just like the father and the prodigal son. Assume all the loss. But what we owe God as rebels is not financial. And our debt that God must assume in order to forgive us is not material. Our debt is profoundly moral. And what he must assume to himself for us is his own righteous judgment. If Jesus, the Son, is not in the Father, and the Father not in the Son. Jesus' death on the cross could not have been an atoning sacrifice for sins. And you are still in your sin. The deity of Christ is as essential to the truth of the cross as his resurrection. Apart from either, we are most to be pitied. But because we have placed our hope for eternal life in the crucifixion of a man, a mere man. Jesus said, I and the Father 
are one. And John would later write, he who has the Son has the Father. Because he is the Son. Your faith is not in vain. Because he is the Son. And the gospel is real. It is not fake news. And so since the very beginning, the cry of faith in Christ has been and always will be for the historic, faithful, biblical, orthodox church. It will always be the cry of worship. My Lord and my God. Amen.